1: This is Riley, down here in your favorite state of Texas, just north of San Antonio in the hill country, running around doing environmental inspections. Construction sites, not making much money, but at least I get to drive around and listen to music and podcast and hang out in the beautiful hill country. Try to make it quick here. Other side of the view, other side of the spectrum, rather, as far as trump your animosity towards them. And just like another little viewpoint of where I'm at, a positive of him in there, as opposed to a normal politician, is there's not as many people in his pockets. Oh, I mean, think, think of Biden. Biden is, is a puppet. Biden is an absolute puppet. And the puppeteer masters are the bankers, Silicon Valley executive, all those people. Like, he's, gonna, he's just going to... You're talking about keeping the status quo. What do you think you're going to do with Biden? I mean, Trump, it's going to happen too. We're fucked either way. The ship's not turning. Yes, I agree with you on everything. Uh, And just another view where I'm kind of at. Like, he arguably did some good stuff foreign policy-wise. Everyone thinks, oh my God, Trump's the racist, sexist. Is he a little sexist? Yeah. Definitely a little sexist. Is he racist? No. I don't think so. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. That the terrible left-wing media just threw the, the gasoline on the, on the flames and just made all the psyches of everybody. I mean, made people go fucking crazy over this dude. Uh, the point is, is actions speak louder than words slash tweets slash personality disorders. The dude is just like the rest of them. He, other people are, other politicians are just like it too. Imagine Hillary going in an elevator, smiling before it goes in the elevator with Bill. It closes. What the fuck, Bill? What are you fucking doing? That's not the plan, did it? Opens up, ah, smiles again. They're all fucked up. He's just doing it outwardly. Like he's, you want someone, you want someone to just spoon feed you at the podium? and smile and be nice and presidential and uh, I I, I don't know I'm going I'm ranting and I'm not the most articulate dude but you see my point here uh anyway I got to cut this I know it's going on for too long but uh regardless man I'm still listening to you and I love your podcast been listening for like four or five years something for a while
0: but um but yeah thanks a lot bye hello everybody hello Riley in Texas Uh, Yeah, I see your point. I do see your point. Um, But I think there's more to it than that. You know, it reminds me of uh, one time um, Casilda and I were trying to decide whether we wanted to live in L.A. or not. This was back when people were telling me I was going to be the Anthony Bourdain of sex and I was going to have a TV show. And I, I was having all these meetings with agents and uh, producers, and yeah, it was a a brief, surreal part of my life anyway. Uh, Casilda and I realized we need to live around LA somewhere so I can become rich and famous. And uh, so we're looking at play- we didn't want to live in LA because LA was just so fake and. So false, so much bullshit. So we uh, we did a we sort of looked on a map and made a big circle, uh, you know, like a two-hour drive or three-hour drive around LA. And we uh, we drove to we were in Ojai. We went up to um, Big Bear, went out to Joshua Tree, and then we went down uh, around San Diego. Anyway, we're coming back from San Diego. And I said to Casilda, so what would you think about San Diego, You know, how you feel about living there? She said, I'd rather live in L.A. And I was like, really? You'd rather live in L.A.? You were talking about how much you hate L.A. She said, yeah, but the difference between L.A. and San Diego is that L.A. is real fake, and San Diego is fake fake. And I said, okay, what exactly do you mean by that? And she said, well, for example, if I see a woman – In San Diego, who obviously has a boob job, and I say, Oh, nice boob job, she might she's probably gonna say, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a boob job. Whereas if I see a woman with a boob job in LA and I say, nice boob, she'll say, Thanks, and she'll give me the name and phone number of her doctor. So there's a an authenticity in the bullshit in LA, a shamelessness around the lies. That can seem refreshing, and I think that's what a lot of people see in Trump. It's like, oh, they're all liars, but at least he lies straight out loud, and he does it with a bit of a sense of humor. I mean, I've seen his his stump speeches, and look, I despise the dude. I despised the dude in the 80s before most people ever heard of him. When I w- lived in New York, and you know, he was a presence in New York, and just a fucking laughingstock douchebag. But he was funny in, in his malicious, toxic sort of way. And when I see him give stump speeches, he laughs and he makes fun of himself and he makes fun of the media and he makes fun of everybody. And people, I think a lot of people respond to him because he seems real. And, you know, as Riley's saying, like the Clintons and and the, the Bidens and the, you know, these career politicians – they, you know, Nancy Pelosi, god damn, every time I hear her talk, I just want to fucking die. It's, she's so full of shit. And Chuck Schumer's full of shit. And Ted Cruz is full of shit. I don't think Biden's full of shit. He's, he's one of the few authentic ones. But most of them are just so plasticky, so... Focus group so goddamn artificial um yeah i understand that i understand the rebellion against that i understand the hunger for authenticity and as i've said many times i think that's why podcasts like this have any audience at all because people can hear it's like this is a dude sitting at a table he hardly edits anything. I mean, honestly, the only thing I ever edit out of this is when I can't think of a word, and I'm like, "Oh damn!" What? I just did it. It's like, "What's that word?" Oh, wow! Well, yeah, and you know, you don't need to hear me doing that, right? So I go back and I tape over it. So what? That's the only artificiality in any of this, and I think people respect that. Some people, some people want their radio lab, you know, super produced, super edited, scripted. Fake conversations between people pretending they're having this spontaneous conversation. Okay, I get it. I get it. It's quicker. It's efficient. Um, and I understand that that part of the appeal of this podcast is the same thing that people see in Trump. There's an authenticity, uh, an unscriptedness. Uh, I don't give a shit what the you know advisors tell me to say. I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want to say. I get it but there's more to it than that he is his disrespect for the institutions of government what he's doing right now refusing to to acknowledge to to recognize that he lost the fucking election this petulant childish behavior will have lasting effects will 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 have caused lasting damage to the structure of american government now you might say who gives a shit um you know this government is corrupt and hypocritical and we're headed toward you know environmental apocalypse anyway and i'm not going to disagree with you but I do think that the world is better off with a slow descent rather than a rapid descent. At least on a slow descent, you can try to, you know, we may pull off a crash landing of some sort. A lot of people are going to die. A lot of destruction is going to take place. But maybe some of us or some of you will come out on the other side. But if we go straight down, which is where Trump's taking us, there's no crash landing. That's a nosedive. When the Supreme Court is no longer respected uh, as the last word, as an unbiased arbiter of truth, or at least of public interest, national interest, then fuck it. When Mitch McConnell says and the Republicans say, oh, you know, this election isn't fair because our side lost, like what? With the, the part, the presidential part's not fair, but the congressional part where you guys won is fair? I mean, come on. Come on. Where we just abandon any pretense of there being an objective truth that we can agree on in any, any place we can start when you have – people in the republican party acquiescing to the view that the democrats are essentially a criminal cabal of pedophiles and child rapists what okay yeah that's funny on some level i guess but it's not funny because you know, Nancy Pelosi's a fucking rich old shrew who doesn't give a fuck about anyone, but she's not fucking kids. And neither is Chuck Schumer. I mean, there has to be some allegiance to basic truth. Obama was born in Hawaii. Trump knew that. He knew it the whole time. But he also knew that there were a bunch of racist, racist fuckheads in this country who would grasp onto any excuse to say, that black dude is not my president. And so throw up a lie, and you got millions of people grabbing onto it. That's exactly what Trump did. It's exactly what he knew he was doing. So, no, I don't forgive him, I don't accept him, and I don't agree that they're all like that. They're all shit. They're all shitheads, I'll give you that, at least most of them. The real establishment ones. If, you, if they're not playing the corporate game, they're not in the game at a certain point. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that Joe Biden has been in the pocket of credit card companies and big banks. That's what makes Delaware tick. That's where he's from. That's who he represents. I get it. And I've said that on this podcast many times, but I do think that at heart, Joe Biden is a decent human being. And I think that at heart, Donald Trump is a pathetic, sad, sick fuck. And I think That's a significant distinction.
2: Hi, Chris and tangential listeners. This is Billy from Santa Cruz. And I'm recording this message in uh, mid-November of 2020 in the late morning. I'm a farmer and I'm sitting in my living room right now with my dog sleeping next to me and I'm looking out these um, large windows that make up the whole wall of the living room and there's this gorgeous golden light flooding in Um, and the sliding glass door is open everything is still outside and there was a hawk um, howling earlier and I can hear my dog breathing. This time of year feels so rich and feminine. Um, But what I wanted to say was that the other day I was thinking about disagreements and discussion um, and trauma response and wisdom. As it relates to the mask issue and um, so I also wanted to say that I I disagree with your stance on masks which which makes me more curious about you and your work Um, and considering the incredible really incredible truly incredible work that you've contributed To the collective, I'm curious about what you're thinking.
0: Well, glad you asked. No, actually, I'm not glad you asked. Uh, As I've said in previous podcasts, I I mean, I I don't really understand how you can be curious about what I'm thinking, because I've explained what I was thinking. Masks obscure, or not obscure, uh, obstruct the passage of... Saliva droplets, the virus is in saliva droplets, therefore a mask over your pie hole obstructs the spraying of saliva droplets into the air around you and also to some extent filters saliva droplets that may be in the air coming into your pie hole. It's an air filter. And to me, this issue is no more complicated than whether or not it makes sense to have an air filter in your car. Uh, do you want dirt getting into your engine uh, or not? I mean, virus gets into your respiratory tract. Scientists have determined quite clearly that it's a respiratory infection. It comes in and goes out through your respiratory system. And so putting a filter on your respiratory system is Very, very likely a good idea. Now, that's not to say that your immune system isn't important. Uh, Getting a lot of sleep so your immune response is vigorous. Uh, Getting a lot of sunlight. Vitamin D appears to have something to do with this. Having ventilation in rooms where you're with other people. Um, You know, these are all important things. And I, I see that one of the rhetorical gambits that's often used in this. Discussion is that when someone says masks are important, the implication is that they're saying nothing else is important. Oh, you you think that you know people should should just like not eat well? They should all go to Arby's and then wear masks and everything will be fine. Like no, no, I didn't say that. Nobody says that. Um, you know, you want me to wear a mask? So are you going to come and like you know slap the the big. The What's it called? The Big Mac out of my hands. Like, what, what are you talking about, dude? Sure, go kill yourself with a Big Mac, but you're not killing it. You're not spraying Big Mac into other people's faces. Um, you know, part of this is about do you have the right to do damage to yourself? Yeah, I guess you do. Although, ultimately, at some level, you know, we all pay into a health care system, even one as dysfunctional as that in the United States but yeah, I, I don't think, you know, obviously I drink, uh, people have a right to smoke if they want. I smoke weed. I don't smoke much tobacco ever, unless it's mixed with weed. Um, yeah, I'm not the, uh, I don't claim to have a perfectly healthy, optimal lifestyle. That's not me. Um, but I also think that you don't, that right to do damage to yourself does not extend to your damage, your right to do damage to other people. And the whole point of the mask is that with a virus where you may not know you are infected and contagious, because that's how this virus works, then you could be infecting other people. And the basic courteous thing to do when you're in public is to wear a mask to minimize the risk of you infecting other people it's like look if you if you didn't if you refuse to have an std test and you go to an orgy and you also refuse to wear a condom then you're a douchebag you will not be invited back to the orgy right that's the way it works Or if you're a porn star and you won't get an STD, well, first of all, if you don't get an STD test, you're not going to be a porn star. But say you were and you refuse to get an STD test and you refuse to wear a condom because you're like, yeah, no, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'm great. Uh," Well, then you're just an asshole. So that's how I feel about it. And I don't really, I mean, there are lots of things where where reasonable people can disagree. And I try to keep my mind open to those things, but I don't really see how this is one of them. I don't see the reasonable disagreement. I see people who say government overreach. Okay, that's an argument, but that's not specific to mass. You can make that argument about speed limits, about auto insurance, about gun control. Fine. Fine that's a a conversation that one can have to what extent uh is it legitimate for government to constrain behavior for the supposed good of the collective that's a legitimate conversation but it's not specific to masks um and i come down on on many different sides of that conversation depending upon what the issue is um you know i've i've talked about uh alcohol and driving like some people handle alcohol better than others so how does it make sense that we don't judge people's driving ability what we do is just say any alcohol in your system and that's a uh, illegal and you lose your license and maybe go to jail I, that doesn't make sense to me uh i understand why it is that way but same with speed limits. It's like, look, why why does an eighty five year old man with one eye have the same speed limit as a thirty five year old person with perfect vision and a perfect driving record? You know? There are lots of places where laws don't make perfect sense. Um, And I agree with that. But when people pull that up as a response to the mask thing, then I don't think it's legit because, you know, it's like the pro-life thing. It's like, okay, life begins at conception. I I can see that argument. But if you don't give a fuck about people after they're born, right, if you're not helping the poor, if you're not against war, if you're not actively pro-life in other areas and you just pick this one thing. Then, I think your argument is baseless because if you really believe that it would apply to other areas of your life. if you're only applying it to this one area, then it's just a convenient argument for you so I don't see how a reasonable person can say you know masks are you know government orwellian f- fucking overreach when uh, when a they're not making that argument in other parts of of life and b they are not addressing this very fundamental principle that that fabric, especially multiple layers of fabric, fibers impede the flow of saliva droplets, which contain, contain the virus, which is infectious. If you're not addressing that, that very mechanical issue, then in my opinion, you're not really talking about masks. At all. All right. Enough of that. Whatever your beliefs are, I hope you make it through this winter without getting sick or making anyone else sick. It's going to be a crazy winter. Uh, here we go. Here we go. It's like that moment at the top of the roller coaster where you're starting to go down. It's going to be fucking crazy. Uh, this is a very unusual episode of this podcast. Um, because the guest is a guy named Whitney Lake and, uh, God, how do I describe Whitney Lake? If you listen to, um, the old Toma, I think it was the first Toma I did. It was about, um, my first girlfriend broke my heart in high school and then halfway through senior year, I decided to move to this town where my parents had I, I was going to finish high school where I had gone for a couple of years. And um, I was living with a buddy and his parents and but it was all just fucked up. And I decided to move to this little town my parents had moved to. Um, I moved there, I think, over Christmas break or something, January, maybe. Um and it was a weird time. Go back and listen to the toma if you're interested. It was a very interesting time for me because, you know, I was already accepted into college. Uh, I was just punching the clock as far as high school went. And then I moved to this town and, uh, you know, the whole new kid in town situation, which I had already been through a few times previously. But this time it was really different because... I moved to this little town and there was this group of friends, a group of of mostly guys, but there were, there was one or two women in the group as well. Um, and they just accepted me right in, right away. And, um, it was, it was amazing how generous these people were and kind. And, and, um, I don't know. I just, I fit in with these guys. They invited me to go to concerts with them and you know we'd get high together they call themselves the bong squad and um it was almost as if they'd been waiting for me or like there was a a chair at the table or something it was a strange thing anyway it, it it had a significant effect on my life um as you'll hear if you listen to that toma number one go back in the archives Um, Because I hooked up with this girl and, you know, I went from being sort of the heartbroken schlob in uh, Connecticut to this, uh, like, super stud in Casanova, New York. And then I went to college and things just kept getting better and better and better and everything has been on a roll ever since, basically. And I feel uh, a lot of gratitude toward um, the, this group of people who accepted me and were kind to me and supported me and, um, um, welcomed me. Yeah. And I always heard about this guy, Whitney Lake. Um, but I didn't meet him till I guess Easter break. And what had happened is that Whitney had been this massive presence in this little community community the bong squad. And, uh, right before I arrived in town, uh, Whitney had been sent off to some boarding school. He must've gotten in trouble. I don't, I don't know if I ever knew what he did. And I don't think I asked him in our conversation, but he must, he was up to no good. And he got, his parents sent him off to a boarding school to finish school there. And, um, and so there was this this vacuum this this absence and i guess when i arrived i kind of took his place at the table in some ways and you know it's not nothing intentional uh not like you know he knew i was coming or anything but i do remember when he came back at easter i was a little nervous to meet him because he was this big shot and he came back and he was just as sweet and cool as, as could be and was just as welcoming to me as all these other guys. And anyway, I I don't know. This probably sounds schmaltzy to you, but the point is that um, this guy was a legend and I knew him very little, but I had a lot of affection for him um, because I heard so many amazing things about him. He was a legend because he was brilliant because he was, he was a troublemaker, but a troublemaker in the best sense. He he would not be constrained. He could not be controlled. He was fearless and brilliant and bold and wild and, you know, everything, everything that you want to be when you're 18 or 19 years old, but that the entire world is trying to squeeze out of you. So. Years went by. I went to college, you know, traveled around the world, grad school, blah, 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 my whole life. Forty years go by. I start this podcast, and a couple years into the podcast, I get an email from Whitney Lake saying, Hey, Chris, I listen to your podcast. It's great. Uh, And I hear you're driving around in your van. Well, next time you come to Montana, you should come see me in my pyramid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, what? Whitney Lake from high school lives in a pyramid in Montana. What the fuck is going on? And so we corresponded a little bit, and uh, you know how you know you have email correspondence with people, and you can just tell like that's not their thing, you know. So. It wasn't like we would have an email correspondence where we'd fill each other in on our lives. But it was just like, yeah, hey, dude, come visit. I got a pyramid. It's cool. Okay. So this summer, I managed to uh, go to where Whitney lives in Montana. And lo and behold, I'm driving down the road. And off on the right, I see this huge fucking pyramid. I say, there it is. There's Whitney's pyramid. And I pull off and drive back this dirt road, and you get there. And not only is there a giant pyramid, there's a smaller pyramid, which turns out is Whitney's house. He designed these houses, these buildings, himself, directed their construction. Um, Whitney is... He's like a mad genius scientist except he's not mad. He's hyper rational. He's kind of a a Buckminster Fuller kind of person. He's self-taught. Um I forget what he he went to college but I don't remember what his degree's in. But the dude the the, the big pyramid is like if you took a giant pyramid, you cut it in half and stretched it apart and then put a it connected the two parts of it, that's what the big one is. And that's like a workshop. You go into that, the ground floor of that is full of industrial machinery. I mean, giant industrial presses and laser guided metal cutting tools and stuff i i don't even know what it is from the 30s from the 40s he's collected this stuff all over the world had it trucked in um these things weigh tons he it's amazing he's got a there was a a big whiteboard where he had designed for this UFO concept that he was working on. And he's working on this other thing that'll go on catamarans to balance because they're, they the catamarans are notoriously unstable in certain ways. And this geo geo what's the word geoscopic geodesic? I don't know, whatever, some sort of device, uh, gyroscopic device would uh, help with that. He's going to patent that. He's, he's got all this just fucking ideas everywhere. But he's not a bullshit artist. He, he builds things. He actually makes things. So we're standing in the pyramid that he has designed and built. And it's oriented perfectly so that it catches the right amount of sun. To Everything's off grid. He designs these uh, wind turbines that, that power everything. I mean, this dude has got 10 times the brain power of a normal human um and he's and he's kind and sweet and he gave me a jar of some of the best barbecue sauce I've ever had that he made as well um so anyway he is an extraordinary person and I'm really happy to be able to introduce you to him I uh can't I don't even know what else to say <laughs> That's about, that's about, I've exhausted myself with this introduction. I hope you enjoy Mr. Whitney Lake as much as I do. The dude is one in a million. I'm going to play you out with uh, a song called Drinky. It's by Sophie Tucker. They're a duo, uh, a man and a woman. They met at uh, I think at Brown University, and uh, they started uh, the Tucker's uh, uh, DJ and Sophie plays some instruments and sings. And anyway, this is a, a really interesting song. I, I just love it. It's groovy as fuck. It's called "Drinky," and the band is Sophie S O F I Tucker T U K K E R. Enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Whitney. Bye.
1: Bate um papo, eu boto um ponto, eu tomo um drink e eu fico tonto.
0: I record an intro separately, so we don't need to waste your time with that. It's all right, uh, I've already told everybody what an amazing guy you are, and I appreciate what a bizarre that. situation this is that I'm seeing you after 40 years, Chris. Damn,
3: that's too long. And yet, true friendship is always indicated when even the passage of four decades seems like nothing at all. All of that yeah. interim yeah. vanishes. It's as though it didn't occur, and we just simply took extended vacations hither, thither and yon, especially with
0: yawn. It, it, a lot of yawn. A lot of yawn. A lot of yawn in there. Whence and hence. You know, I, I don't know if you and I have ever spoken about this, but, and I don't know if it works the same way uh, for you, but my memory of you is almost like you were this phantom that because you left Casanova shortly before I arrived— Yes, I think, did you go to a boarding school or something? Yes,
3: I went to a a really dreadful school in Williamstown, Massachusetts, whose name I won't mention because I don't believe in giving any credit there at all. However, that one incident at that school served as a watershed for the rest of my life. Even though genetically I can't prove it, I met a fellow two years my senior— who literally looked like me, behaved like me, had mannerisms like me, speech patterns like me, and people quite frequently mistook us for brothers, mm. and I thought, that's amazing. He was uh, doing, later in later years, we hooked up and were doing a psychedelic light show, Uh, for the Allman Brothers. His company was called the Brotherhood of Light, and he had resurrected an original San Francisco light show company, one of the five that had remained through the 60s. Hmm. And he was working in a disco, and he got seen by one of the original creators, a guy named Brother Ed, who had been living in a school bus. He sort of saw Peter doing his gig, and sort of passed the torch to him it was like obi-wan and and luke skywalker very much that it was mythological so years later we're doing a number of shows we did a 20th anniversary for jerry garcia band uh, jefferson airplane and a reunion of the strawberry alarm clock which then resulted in a long-term gig with the allman brothers which lasted up until just a few years ago uh just prior to Greg Allman's passing, but Peter had done this company and he was a very, he was a very creative artist. And we in nineteen eighty-nine on a comeback tour, when the Allman brothers were really sort of getting back to what they once were, Dickie Betts uh, came up to me in the light booth off stage, and unbeknownst to him, Peter had gone to take a little coffee break. And he just patted me on the back. He said, you know, Pete, that was really beautiful. I love the colors, especially in dreams. And I said, thank you very much, Mr. Betts. I really appreciate the compliment, but I'm Whitney. And he looked, he was taken aback, and he said, oh, my God, there's two of you. And so
0: I knew Hmm. at that moment there was something really more than just the visual. And you were, as you mentioned to me before we went uh, live, or not live, turned on the mics here, uh, you were adopted, and you knew that at the time. Right. Did you ever talk to him? Was he adopted? He was
3: adopted a year and a half okay. later by a Jewish family in Los Angeles who moved to New Jersey. Then I was adopted in upstate New York, 1962. We met when I was a sophomore, and he was a senior at this private school. And we were. it, it was instantaneous. It was like a bolt of lightning. People really we visually, you know, interested in how similar we were I'll in you, all of our habits. It was, here's a synchronicity for you. We were talking about this I just before. I love
0: this. I mean, you're, you're, we're already talking about a bizarre synchronicity. And that's part of what we do. A few weeks ago, I got an email from a guy saying um, he listens to the podcast and he has a story that he, he would like to tell me on the podcast, uh, which is that he... Uh, went to college, a small college, I think it was, and he met a dude and they became really close friends and i don 't remember the details, but it turned out that they were brothers, yeah, but they didn't know there's something going on with the parents i don 't know if one of them was adopted or both of them I don't remember the details i 'll show you the email uh after if you're interested, yes, but same thing, same school, teenagers, hey, you know we have some kind of resonance. What are the odds of that that's so bizarre there there's
3: Several theories whereby people that are separated at birth, we've seen lots of pictures in the paper. There's even a column that's national where somebody specializes in this. Oh, doesn't this movie star look like this schlub from the corner? <laughs> you know, come on. I mean, they and, and it's eerie. Really, it's hair raising. And you have to say to yourself, there are some similarities there that go beyond coincidence. They have to be more than coincidence. Now, Peter and I have never done a gene test. We're absolutely confident the gene test from a legit lab would say, wow, you really are brothers. But we're confident. We're so confident we don't need to take the test. Why take a test to prove something that we really know instinctively? Mm. And with my oldest daughter, I get to I'm adopted, and she's adopted, and I get to extend that blessing another generation. And we are very telepathic. People frequently notice that we're communicating without saying anything, and I'm hearing what she says because she thinks very clearly. My my youngest daughter thinks very clearly, too. Certain people I've had several dozen of these episodes that can't be explained. They are telepathic. They are clairvoyant. I've had occasion to try and explain this to people where it's like a radio and how old radios have a signal that kind of wanders and fades. Mm. It's not digital. It can't get locked on because it's manual and analog. But in the digital realm, you can focus. However, in the telepathic realm, I don't think it's locked on unless there's an extraordinary familiarity. There's an unspoken communication. I've even found this with certain animals here. There were a twin set of antelope males that were born here 20 years ago, and I named them the brothers. They were as identical as I have ever seen, and I have noticed throughout my life, I have this propensity like a magnet for twins. It's animals with twins. The twin moose that I told you I saw yesterday. The two pairs of identical twin girls that were in my grade school classes. Over the course of 20 years, the last 10 years of living here in Madison County with a very small population density, there are 17 pairs of twins within 10 miles of me. That's statistically so beyond what even the Twin Center in the Twin Cities in Minnesota says is even feasible. <laughs> they said, they, they, and they and these are people who scientifically study twins. There's a twin festival annually, and I told them about this unusual set of twins. I was even in the school when my kids were uh, in the early grades, and there was a secretary named Miranda, and I just happened to be, you know, shooting the breeze with her for a few minutes and talking to her about this propensity to be a magnet for twins. Not only this, but it just seems to grow. It started out as 10 pairs, and then five years later, it's 20 pairs of twins, and she's acknowledging my story when in walks a woman with her twin daughters, and she looks right around me, and she says, how do you do that? And I said, I'm not doing this. I am a conduit. I'm an acknowledger of some set of natural uh, field effects that are at work. And I've always acknowledged them since I was little. I have always had occasion to acknowledge them. And very rarely, I have good close friends who actually witness these unusual things. And the, you... And, and I'm, it's always gratifying that I have witnesses, because yeah. they otherwise would seem just preposterous.
0: Did how, Do you remember the, the first instances of this sort of thing, where you I, realized, like, oh, this isn't normal, most people aren't experiencing this? Yeah, I, I
3: in Mrs. Gamble's class in first grade, Mary and Margaret Schwarzer were identical twins, and the teacher made them sit on opposite caddy corners of the room, and... I had a crush on this girl named Caroline Freeburn whose long brown hair was so long she could actually sit on it and lean forward and not bend over. It was really amazing. And that's why I love long hair. But (laughs) Mary and Margaret Schwartzer being identical twins were always, you know, people say, oh, they're identical. They're identical. It's like, no, Margaret had more freckles. And I sat deliberately in the middle of the class and they would, they'd ask me occasionally, why do you sit in the middle? and i said that's because i can hear your crosstalk and it made them very uncomfortable but i did it deliberately because i found it fascinating to be able to have tuned in inadvertently to their wavelength
0: did you hear the other kids as well no oh, so it's only because they're projecting or they're twinning they're
3: twinning yeah. is what they're doing yeah. it's it's not it's not like the poles of a magnet they weren't op- opposing They were convective, Mm -hmm. I want to say. They were concurrent with the emphasis on current. There's some kind of electromagnetic activity. There's neurophysiology that I'm sure if we were able to analyze a subatomic activity area of the brain, something would be clicking. It's like hearing an old Morse code tacker going off in the next room you know it goes it goes without a person or with but it clicks to indicate there's activity on the line and by being in the right place at the right time and having a mind that just was naturally open to reception of those kinds of signals i got the information
0: and you realize nobody else was picking up on it right
3: and yeah. i and i only told a few people and most of them would just you know Forget it, you're, you're a nutcase or something. Did it
0: make your parents uncomfortable? No,
3: I think they understood early on that there was something about me that was different. I've had clairvoyant experiences probably 16, 18 times in my life. Absolutely knew what was going to happen. Um, there was an incident with our dear friend Mark DeCue in an apartment in Boston. And we had a water pipe that was in the kitchen And I closed my eyes for a second and I saw the water pipe on the floor. There was like, it was like a postcard that was in midair. It was about this. The mind's eye was projecting like a miniature drive-in movie. And I saw it was broken in pieces. I looked up. There was a cat walking across the counter while Mark was doing the dishes, the water pipe to his right. And I said, Mark, don't scare the cat. And before the word cat had finished leaving my mouth, Mark clapped his hand, scared the cat, it bounded across the counter, knocked the water pipe over, and it shattered into exactly the position I had just seen moments ago. So the very act of trying to prevent that, I am absolutely certain, created it. Mm. That That proved to me that on some rare occasions... The future is fixed. That's not always the case. In fact, mm. probably most of the time, that's not the case.
0: So you think you can avoid something that you've yeah. seen, which then begs the question of whether you actually saw it, right? I mean, in this case, right. the act of intervening created the thing you saw, but right. sometimes you're saying intervening could...
3: Is it a loop? Is yeah. it is it a loop? Is it an, an entrapment, a temporal entrapment of some kind? Is it a predestination? Is it a foregone conclusion?
0: Or is it that the brain is somehow capable of perceiving something before it happens? There's evidence for this. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this research. Um, I forget the, the man's name. It was at uh, University of Nevada at Las Vegas. I think he had a lab set up there and he, he studied this sort of stuff. But he had uh, hooked people up to um, uh, machines that measure very acutely um, stress response. Mm -hmm. So, skin conductivity, essentially like a lie detector, but instead of looking for lies, they're just looking for surges of stress. Very subtle. Very subtle and very immediate, down to nanoseconds. And then he had a computer with randomized images, half of which were comforting kittens and you know, apple pie and, you know, sitting around the fire, and half of which were a pistol pointed right at you or a snake about to strike or something like that. And what he found was that people responded to the stressful images before they flashed on the screen. Wow. Because it was measurable. It was measurable, right. So somehow they perceived the stimulus that was about To enter their consciousness before it actually appeared. It's almost like a hyper
3: vigilant forewarned is forearmed. Could be. And and they they somehow had a window into this. Uh, Could it be a vestigial from when, even before the time of organized hunting gathering societies, where we had to have a hyper awareness, a predator? potential predator awareness. Uh, something, we heard the snap of a twig deep in the woods, the heaviness of a foot indicated it was a bear. There needs to be 20 of us if we're going to take the bear. It can't be just me versus the bear. Yeah. Could it be something like that? Except in our society, we get a lot of stuff that's noiseless, and we get a lot of contrary overlapping noises so that white pink noise all sorts of backgrounds canceling out mm-hmm.
0: our ability to discern those layers certainly it happens with all the sensors right their sense of yeah. smell is destroyed by all the exhaust fumes and dust and all. you know the way i think about it because i've had similar experiences uh, where i saw something that hadn't yet happened and i kind of think about it like you know a big storm's coming in you You feel it in the wind. You smell it before the rain comes. Yeah. You know, there there are parts of the storm that we don't consider to be part of the storm, but they get here first, kind of like a shock wave. Yeah. You know, a bow
3: shock. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. It's the predecessor. It's somehow there's some precursive events that allow us to sense things. And in our modern selves... We, I think we ignore a lot of these things at our peril. Mm. We don't uh, acknowledge that they exist any longer because we don't need them anymore. We don't need to be hypervigilant. However, I notice with my four-legged neighbors, the pronghorn antelope, the male, usually the alpha male and two of his brothers, are usually on the higher ground and their heads are moving like periscopes and if in effect i can sort of get what they're what they're doing they're saying where's the predator where's the where where's the food where 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 are the children where where are the females where's the food supply where where's the water where's the cat where's the predator and they're doing it because up until 12,000 years ago, there still were saber-toothed cats around here, yeah, and there still are mountain lions. Yeah, but yeah. they're
0: nothing compared to saber-toothed. No, tigers, no, right?
3: I, Yeah, the beauty—the beauty of it—is you still sort of, you can sort of feel, you can feel them. And as the old timers like to say, of this neck of the woods, like everything outside in certain areas is designed to bite, scratch, or sting. <laughs> and if you're not wearing certain shoes, you can you can get pretty cut up. Yeah. But it's just the way. The way things are, and a lot of our environments are they're plastered over, they're plasticized, they're rubberized, they're paved over, they're macadamed. you know you go to a large city and there's so much background noise that you would do well to sit and almost meditate on the type of noise within which you find yourself. So you're actually retuning your whole auditory system. And in a sense, you're also retuning your balance gland at the same time because it's all the capacity. People say, well, well, why don't why don't you ever get a cold, Wit? And I said, because I put hydrogen peroxide a drop in each ear on the morning. I take a fistful of blueberries. I drink a lot of water from a well. And I don't think I've been sick in nine years. And everybody's saying, well, aren't you worried about the, the pandemic? And I said, why? I hardly have any contact with any human beings at all. Mm. Why Why should I adopt <laughs> someone else's worry because they <laughs> yeah. want to share it with me? Yeah, thanks oh, for nothing. Well, you know, the, the whole presupposition of if I wear a mask, I look like I care, therefore I do – is is so phony it's it's mendacious you know it's just it's not worth our time but what is worth our time is noticing what we really have and counting our blessings i count them i say fresh water clean air i've got fresh food supply if i had to i could shoot food supply i've got 10 different kinds of meat running around within a mile of me on four legs. I said, nobody in this county is ever going to starve. There's no way. Everybody I know has three, four years worth of elk and venison in their freezer. So we're not in competition with anybody.
0: And you're off the grid, so you don't have to worry about that going down.
3: Right. And I and I realized early on at my parents' cocktail parties that I, I didn't want to grow up behaving like those people. Mm. And I wanted to be a free spirit I wanted to be just who I was I wanted to and my parents would always say well what do you want to do when you grow up I said well I want to do everything and they said well that's you know that's unrealistic it's not attainable or something to that effect and they were just being parents It's okay yeah. but I remember Mrs. Lamoureux in third grade she was a brilliant brilliant lady had these really cool trapezoidal glasses not unlike yours sir And I remember the last day of third grade, she got everybody up, you know, you know, Mary, what are you going to do? Kurt, what are you going to do? Sully, you know, what are you going to do? And I was the last person up. And she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, well, I'd like to be a time traveler. And of course, it's like everybody's making for the door. It's like, it's time to get out of here. (laughs) And that's okay. I, yeah. I I accept that role. And as I've gone through meditations on past lives, essentially, that's sort of been my job. It's yeah. a, it's a strange kind of immunity, where I'm not worried about death. I'm not worried about being murdered. I'm not worried about any of that stuff anymore, because I know I I know at least six of the people I've been, and I'm confident that somehow some series of events brings me back around because it's unfinished business or something like that. it's not about revenge or some overarching sense of justice must be done or political history it's something else there's something else going on there's a mechanism in past lives there's growing evidence for this uh, i've read a wonderful book a dr norman the journey of souls uh and know. it's called The Journey of Souls. Philip Norman. I, I'm, I'm missing the name. But one of his early patients, and he was in the field of, of psycho psychology, psychoanalytics. And he had a patient, a woman, who always had trouble with her trachea. Just had trouble breathing. Was always, you know, having surgeons look at it, uh, MRIs, what have you. And it. she had these lucid images of being shot through the neck in an Indian attack in the 1850s in Kansas. She even remembered her prior name. They checked on this and sure enough, there's a woman who was shot through the neck by a Kiowa arrow in 1848. And this is, and, and the, 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 the wound, the injury was so obvious that it was caused by an arrow. Yeah. And it presented 160 years later in this woman. So to me, that's incontrovertible. It could not be anything other than this woman came back. She was that woman in 1848. She perished. She comes back, and she's still carrying
0: that from the previous life. There's a guy named Ian Stevenson who was a psychiatrist who taught at the University of Virginia Medical School. He probably died in the last five years or so. Um, and as a sort of side gig, he investigated um, cases of reincarnation. And he has a book called 20 Cases of Suggestive Reincarnation or something like that. Um, but he found these cases where, similar to what you're describing, he had uh, graduate students in, in um The southern united states india and i think lebanon and brazil and they would interview children who remembered a previous life three to five years of age i guess is around where the kids would talk about it and in cultures where these sorts of things are disbelieved The kids are just, that's ridiculous, shut up, stop talking about that. But he specialized in these cultures because those cultures accept this and they're interested and the parents would you know, bring the researchers to talk to the kids. And in 20 of these cases, they've got enough details from the kids that they tracked down the previous, the person who had died. So that, you know, I remember one case was a kid in India and he talked about how yeah, you know, a truck hit me. I was on my bicycle. I was coming home from the brick, the brick factory. There was a river and the truck hit me. And, and also often the kids had birthmarks at the place of injury. So similar to what you're talking about with the neck manifesting. Yes. Um, they would have a birthmark where a bullet went into them or where the truck rolled over them. Right. And often, I think in every case, it was an early violent death. It was yes. not someone who died as a happy old man right. who came back. It was someone who died too soon, often violently. Um, and yeah, so so I've, I've seen evidence of these things as well. Who knows if it's everyone, who knows how it happens, who knows why it happens, but there do seem to be solid scientific cases where uh, it's pretty clear that something's going on there.
3: And I believe the research uh, also shows that the children, when interviewed, speak of it in an older person's voice as though yeah. a person beyond their years would yeah. be able. Uh, they, you know, A three-year-old, how can a three-year-old be describing such things? Right. Because their vocabulary is limited.
0: I had a little sister named Melissa. And then when they introduce the kids, in some of these cases, yeah. they take the kids to the village and they introduce them to the family. And as soon as the kid walks in, the people are like, Robert, Robert, where have you, like, this is a little, little kid, but they recognize their brother who died 20 years ago or something. It's just yeah. amazing the essence of uh, something so far beyond what we're accustomed to, but it's recognizable when you see it. I know, I and I think Western, our uh, Western mindsets
3: are often, we're so mechanical, we're so distanced Um, uh, another reason I like to wear bare feet Uh, the ground outside is pretty pretty rough and it's pretty tough wearing bare feet but I believe in bare feet for that exact same reason I want to be grounded I want to physically touch the earth there's something about being in contact with something actual something fundamental that is part of where we've all come from besides the ocean I need to be near an ocean soon because that's a direction my life is taking me, which is why I'm designing this unusual catamaran. And the catamaran will, you know, join the worlds of Jacques Cousteau and Captain Kirk. So it'll be both the scientific and the science fiction into a a vessel.
0: Do you intend to live on it?
3: I do. I intend to... um, do some incredible things on that vessel, which have never been done before. Mm. I want to have remote submersibles that can dive way beyond my capacity because I'm somewhat claustrophobic. I I wouldn't get in a scuba suit if you paid me. Mm. But I would operate a remote vehicle uh, on the deck of a ship and see what's down there. I have my suspicions uh, about certain creatures that I know in my bones are not extinct. I know trilobites are not extinct. I just know they're not. They they're too they're too sturdy to have suddenly been snuffed out. And I was uh, a beach bum for many summers on Martha's Vineyard and there would always be a tide of horseshoe crabs and there was always something about them that called to me. I I'd, mm-hmm. I'd walk among them and they they'd be crawling all over the place. I mean it's just this huge reproductive cycle that they're on sometimes it coincides with with syzygy as many crustaceans uh, uh, what's, uh, what's syzygy thing? is an extreme 19 well actually not it's an 18.3 year lunar cycle whereby the it, the highest tide is higher and the lowest tide is even lower
0: oh, okay
3: and My friend and I have often talked about this, but horseshoe crabs have blue blood. It's not possible to give a horseshoe crab a cold, a disease, a bacteria, a germ. And science knows this. They study horseshoe crabs precisely to find out why it is. Well, horseshoe crabs have been around through nine mass extinctions on this planet. And there's something about them that enables them to just simply keep going on. And I say, I liken myself to the horseshoe crab and they're one of my heroes and I I enjoy them. I I just believe it. And my dear grade school friend, Kurt Weisscotton's father was the first person that I recognized as a conservationist, a naturalist, a biologist, a botanist. And he was the director of the Beaver Lake Nature Center near where we went to school. And I remember in second grade, he was talking about the ivory-billed woodpecker. I thought, wow, this is unusual. And he's talking about certain animals that have been extinct. There's something about his lecture that struck me. And I never let go of the notion that somehow it's not extinct. And it wasn't even within the past 10 years that there's a man in a swamp in Arkansas who's paddling around And he's left his video camera in the canoe, and he had left it on. So it's filming as he's simply paddling around. And he stops near this tree, and there's a hole in the tree, and out pops an ivory-billed woodpecker. And I tell you that if Japanese fishermen can pull up a megalodon tooth that's less than 12,000 years old, there's one hanging around. There's plenty of food for a small pot of them, probably not much more. I believe these animals are making their presence known by saying, we never give up. <laughs> that you can put us into yeah. the extinction category, but we're coming back anyway.
0: Life is amazing. Um, I had a guy in the podcast named Bruce I, I If you listen to one episode, that's the one I'd love you to listen to. I will. Um He's, a, he's an extraordinary guy, very similar to you in a lot of ways. He works with NASA. He designs spacecraft. He's on the uh, commission helping to decide where the, Mars, the next Mars mission should land on the surface of Mars. He is basically a, just a self-taught genius. And when I asked him where his knowledge comes from, how he's able to access knowledge... He told me this extraordinary story about who he's adopted. Hmm. And uh, he said that his first memory is in the womb. And he remembers hearing voices, wow. muffled voices, and then feeling his mother's love stop. Extraordinary. And, he remem- and his narrative is, this is when she decided to put me up for adoption. Extraordinary. And he said, in that moment... With my mind, I reached out to try to find her love. And I never found her love, but I found some kind of frequency. And he's, as he's telling me the story, we're in his house in the redwoods above Santa Cruz. It's a drizzle rain. It's night. It's just a, It was one of the few moments I wish I could have filmed it just because it was so extraordinary, but that would have ruined the moment. But he reached out with his hands and he closed his eyes and he said, my with my mind, I reached out, looking for her love, and I never found it. But I did find a portal into knowledge, all the knowledge that exists.
3: It sounds like Edgar Casey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, his and his ability is well documented. It's it's absolutely unassailable. It's irreducible. It was so well taken down by his spouse when he was in a trance-like state. There are thousands of these cases where he would see a patient and he would go into a trance and he would see the keeper of the books of some extraordinarily vast library, as he described it. And he would simply come back only with the knowledge of this specific remedy and help somebody who was a burn victim for example you mix peanut oil and a few of these other things and then you apply it and sure enough case after case after case the predictions that he's made uh would make Nostradamus look like an amateur and I really I really think this is this is the truth I think for example When we're told in history about the sack of the Library of Alexandria, if we cast ourselves back and we're the general with our army who is tasked with this awesome deed, wouldn't we simply take the scrolls out and then destroy the building? Because keeping those scrolls, many of which I suspect are in the library, in Rome that the Vatican the Vatican has possession of, which they will not acknowledge. Which I believe is true because some of the map fragments that Piri
0: Reese got a hold oh, Piri of. Piri Reese. Yeah, that's a very interesting
3: Yeah, when I read Graham Hancock's yeah. books, I said this guy is right up my street. I said this man and after reading his books, I I had gone to Egypt prior to learning of Graham Hancock. I have this sense about where I have to be being at the right place at the right time. So in 1989, on the spring equinox, I was at the Giza Plateau. I bribed a guard because it's not safe or allowed to climb up the Great Pyramid. But I wanted to find out if the summit platform really was there, and it was And I climbed up, and I got to the summit about 3 in the morning. And I was looking in the direction of the Sphinx. And the Sphinx had a certain constellation in front of it. And it was ebbing. And another one was shifting in place. And six years later, I read one of the chapters of Mr. Hancock's book. And it confirmed why I was there. I had people tell me, complete strangers, they had they told me convincingly that they had seen me there before. And I said, well. Maybe not this year, maybe a lot longer ago than you think. But it always seems to come back to me that I'm doing something at the right place, the right time, in the right way, with the right emphasis. I like to sometimes deliberately put the accent on the wrong syllable (laughs) because it has a little more weight and it gets people alert to the fact that you're on to something. As Mr. Hancock has proved again and again and again, you know, as Eric von Däniken did in the mid-70s in his sort of sensationalist way, he was in essence onto something where 20 years later, Graham Hancock really puts the good science and the good investigative journalism to it. Very accessible writing style. And it is absolutely on the mark. It can't possibly be an accident. None yeah. of it can be
0: an accident. Well, the Piri Reese, Just to, for people who are wondering, what the hell we're talking about? The Piri Reese map was from uh, what? 15,
3: day, 15, 17, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and in the on the map, uh, Piri Reese, who was the the map maker, wrote that he hadn't seen these shorelines. He was sort of putting together this map from earlier maps that he right from fragments about. that he had because he had yeah. access to the Imperial Library at Constantinople. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, this map was famous because the shoreline that was drawn in great detail uh, over the centuries, uh, scientists and cartographers were trying to figure out what it referred to. Like, where is this shoreline in the Mediterranean? Right. Where is it? And they couldn't find a shoreline that matched the inlets and the islands and you know the whole all the detail. And then in the 1970s, I think. the it 1960, it was Hapgood,
3: uh, professor of history at uh, New Hampshire State University, I think. And who- they were doing the
0: the, sono, the, the sound well, the Swiss, waves. The,
3: Swiss, uh, the 1948 Swiss-British seismic team showed that the underlying features of Antarctica are, in fact, its two gigantic islands. Then in 1960, Hapgood took the map fragment to the United States Air Force uh, right. to see if he could corroborate the the, the 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 degree of how could we explain the degree of accuracy of such a, of such a fragment because it matched the shoreline right it was less than one tenth of an arc degree out of true right. which is just ex- extreme
0: yeah. And this is a shoreline that had been under ice for 10,000 years.
3: Right, right. And that the last time it could have been mapped in an ice-free condition was around that time. And now that's Graham Hancock's latest uh, investigation. Avenue is the younger Dry Ass, the meteorite impacts right, and with, uh, the other activity. Randall Carlson, Randall Carlson, right yeah. at the University of Washington, I believe, and yeah. his lectures are on YouTube, and I've been I've been keeping an eye out for that. Yeah. But if you see, having grown up in upstate New York, I can immediately recognize what Mr. Carlson is talking about because Drumlins, a city in upstate New York, is made of Drumlins, a geomorphological feature from Rushing meltwater. What are drumlins? A drumlin is a teardrop shape of land. It's like a butte that's raised up because the water has raced around it Ah. and formed this teardrop because it's been such a sudden rush of water Uh that it's formed these uh, elongated teardrops into this called feature. Some of them they are sometimes accompanied by another one. They're called Drumlins and Eskers. But Drumlins is a town in upstate New York named after one of these features. Now, the Drumlins in upstate New York are maybe 60 by 100 yards. The ones Mr. Carlson and Mr. Hancock talk about are from Saskatchewan all the way down into Nevada. And they comprise Drumlins' that are roughly 60 by 100 miles. This is an extreme water event. The pent-up glacial ocean, which must have contained hundreds of quadrillions of gallons of fresh water. Imagine these meteorites bombarding it, and all of a sudden they crack loose, and you've got chunks of ice the size of Rhode Island sliding across the continent. And it's no wonder that oceans worldwide rose three feet in an hour. So... It and also it helps is. explains like there are 800 parallel flood myths all over the world right. containing almost exactly the same elements.
0: And the Columbia River Gorge was cut River out Gorge. by this. It was eroded. It was just
3: right. Blasted. It was it was it literally eroded into an existence. Yeah. Yeah, whereas Niagara Falls is slowly eroding itself over the course right. of a long more time. Like the
0: Grand Canyon was a slow erosion.
3: The Grand but. Canyon could have been more rapid. It oh, could really? have been another train. Of this sudden rough thing. Of rough, Uh yeah. So, you know, when we think of Noah as mythological, well, we don't have to know these people's names. We know there was such an event, or maybe a series of events that happened
0: a few times within a, a thousand and a half years. Which also explains the the sort of PTSD-like symptoms of civilizations, our, our inability to really think straight. You know, like right. we're all living in, in cultures that are shaped around trauma.
3: Right. We're living on borrowed time. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine, um, Julio, and I like to talk about motion when people say, well, we're sitting on the porch just shooting the breeze. And I said, you know, we're all in motion. And people just say, you know, you, you knuckleheads, you know, what are you doing And I'd say, well, let's see. We've got relativistic motion, Brownian motion, actual motion. The planet rotates, perturbates, revolves. Our solar system is torsionally tumbling. We have redshift and blueshift. Oh, and I haven't even crossed the street yet. That's ten. Right. And so when I look at people, I said, Oh, I'm 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 too busy. I'm going in nine different directions at once. And of course, you know, and I love and I love pulling that that rabbit out of a hat for yeah. them. And they're just like, Oh yeah, you're a nut. Get away from me. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your tattoos have come to life and they're attacking you. Get away from me. You know, it's like it's it but that's that's the kind of thing I like to contemplate because what is it really? And it led me to something. And we're getting older. And we're getting older. We're moving through time in an apparent way. Mm. I mean, I can say my hair grows, my fingernails grow. I can see the change of seasons in a tree, a leaf coloring, and a falling. What What are we really seeing? We're seeing a cyclical nature of time. But it's interesting because if you think of time, I think of time as omnidirectional. And our capacity is limited so we can only see it happening in a few ways we can't see it um i made a sculpture uh, once for my mother she had some friends that were badgering her about being late and my mom was persnickety she was never late to anything it was just some old fuddy-duddy telling her to be on time and i said mom we're gonna we're gonna get them at the next garden party so what i did was i took the gnomon off her sundial and i replaced it with a prism and so when the Fuddy Duddy came back and he said, What's this? And I said, Well, my mom can't be late because it's orange o'clock or purple thirty <laughs> And he just looked at me like, You little <laughs> and I said, you know, and they'd always do something infantilizing like, Well, I remember you and you were this tall and I said, Didn't didn't you used to have more teeth? <laughs> You know, because I, I used to just give it right back to them. Yeah. I said, you know, why 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 do that to people? Why not? Why don't we enjoy ourselves and enjoy the fact that time could be seen in color, but we can't see it because we're only seeing three ten thousandths of the entire EM spectrum. I mean, what if we could widen that by one full degree? You know, seeing into the ultraviolet and a little bit into the infrared. So it got me thinking about redshift and blue shift. and I was doing some long math. And I love long math because it's very straightforward. A teacher typically in high school is going to get the kids to multiply some seven-digit number by a five-digit number just to see if they can still do it. And and that got me thinking, pi r squared or pi d. And I said, okay, we can do this. What speed is the earth going at right now? And I say, okay, it's 1,000 miles an hour. It's rotating at about 1k, 1,000 miles an hour. Okay, what's the speed at which the Earth revolves around the sun? About 66,000 miles an hour. Okay, now we know this because we have pi d. It takes us such amount of time, and we divide up that distance by the amount of time. I said, we can do this on a larger scale. Let's do this again. Okay, we know rotation. We know revolution. What's the next logical step? What's the speed of our solar system? Okay. We're 32,000 light years from here to galactic center multiplied by two. 64,000 light years approximately. Divided by 225 million years to go once around. That's about 4% the speed of light, as it turns out. Long math.
0: Which is the speed that our solar system is... Is traveling along with us, with with our sun,
3: and and it's just traveling along, except our solar system, if you looked at it from a remote location, we're able to change perspectives rapidly to really notice and have long periods of time elapse so you could play exceeding long time-lapse photography. You would see that the solar system is doing this along a slinky path. It's um, torsionally tumbling in a torus.
0: Almost like a Copernican sense. It's spinning within the spin. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah.
3: compound spinning. Yeah. And it's it, that's the spiralness that you see. So I tell people about micro and macro all the time. I said there are spiral galaxies and you have a spiral in a snail shell right at your feet. One is micro and one is macro. But there's a spiralness at work here. Mm. that's scalar it could be very tiny it could be enormous right it could be our double wrapped it could be the old double so do
0: you feel and that's
3: why the caduceus is so mysterious how did they know that the caduceus was the double wrapped spiral why is that the medicinal symbol
0: the medicinal symbol the snakes going around the staff right
3: but it's older than ancient greece a lot of cultures had a couple of intertwined snakes it yeah. was medicinally powerful.
0: So do you it was do shamanistic you conceive of the world, the material world, and perhaps the non-material world in a fractal sense? Are you looking for repeating patterns on different scales? My mind
3: automatically gloms onto patterns like the twinning. Right. It's so, it's so peculiar. Why does the number 12 keep repeating in my life? I looked on my birth certificate one time. My mom showed me. She said, you were born at the 12th minute of the 12th hour of the 12th day of the 12th month. And I said, well, that's obviously not an accident. <laughs> I said that's extraordinary.
0: Was it C-section or natural? I don't know. Uh, I don't
3: know. That's a good that's a good question. Yeah. See, there there is a legitimate mystery. I like that. And I've always told people who visit me here at the pyramid, I say, bring yourself, bring friends and family, but most of all bring your curiosity because one of my favorite things in the universe are questions. I really adore questions because it helps us find answers, but it also leads to more questions. And that's the journey. That's that oscillation. And I tell people, you know, being an adopted person gives me a unique perspective because I hear people wrangling politically about, you know, right to life versus right to choice. And I said, why don't you both camps... Walk to the center of the seesaw and consider adoption. No, no, no. And the reason they can't and won't is because they're so vested in their positions. Yeah. So I always end up at the fulcrum of the seesaw watching these two sides go. And they'll never change. They're hopeless. They're irreconcilable, which is sad because they can be but they don't want to be.
0: Right. Their their identity is, is tied into that position. That's
3: right. They're too they're positioned so fixedly that they can't risk stepping off the seesaw because the other person's gonna get catapulted. Yeah. And I said, you both have to coordinate stepping off the seesaw at the same time. Yeah. And I said that's the reason why digital is a lie. Digital is a great tool. But it belies the analogous nature of everything. The,
0: the gray. The gray zone. There's no gray zone. That's right. On no, or off. That's so right. It's on right.
3: or off. There's no maybe. There's no if-then statements. There's none of that stuff. And yeah. it's really, it's frightening in a way because it's digital with its zeros and ones is like saying a seesaw can operate without a fulcrum.
0: Mm.
3: It's preposterous. mm
0: mm-hmm. There's no, there's no center. Yeah. There's no center. Yeah. There's no center. You know, before I forget, I, I just want to finish this little anecdote about how I moved to Kazanovia halfway through my senior year. Good. Just within weeks of you being, you know, shipped off to boarding, shipped school. off. I don't yeah. know what you did to, the, to get shipped oh, out of town. Oh goodness me. <laughs> okay, but whatever it was, I'm sure I, I heard stories at the time, but oh, I don't remember. Those small
3: town rumors.
0: But my point is, I moved to this <laughs> tiny little town halfway through senior year. Uh, The main reason I moved, I was planning to finish out my senior year in Connecticut, where I'd been for the previous two years. But I had a girlfriend. She dumped me ruthlessly. I was brokenhearted. My parents had already moved to Casanova. I was living with a friend. By the way, another adopted genius friend of mine in in Connecticut, Chip. (sighs) And anyway, uh, this woman dumped me, this girl dumped me. I was broken hearted. I was like, fuck it. I'm I'm just going to go finish high school in this little town, upstate New York, where my parents are. Yeah. So I move up to this town, expecting it to really suck, right? Because I'd been the new kid a lot growing up. I was always the new kid. We moved a lot. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to go there. It's going to suck. I got to the school, and it was like they were waiting for me. And in retrospect, I realize it's because you had you were sort of the center of this constellation of really beautiful people, of Mark and, and uh, Eric and uh, there's a guy named Robert, I think, I forget. Yeah, uh, Smitty. Smitty, yeah. yeah. Um, Alicia Suarez and all these beautiful people. Maureen Kuntz, yeah, absolutely. And you were like... You were the center of the solar system, and you had just vacated. And we were the, we were the B Squad because the we, B Squad we, we, we ran that place because the
3: B the BSQ the B Squad was created before the television series A Team came yeah. into existence, uh-huh. which was another weird kind of foreshadowing. And the B Squad uh, was a creation in my mind of BSQ, and we sort of had words that fit with it because the B Squad we were we always had bongs. With us. We always had water pipes. We were known for this. And we'd show up at parties with really exotic bongs like hanging around our necks. And people were so kind of wowed by this that we'd just be walking about in public with these water pipes. They'd fill our bongs all, all the time. And we always used the party as a reason to get together and share ideas. It was never about escapism or avoiding responsibility. It was really an intellectual uh, cabal, if you will. Our, Our deliberateness at creating parties became the BSQ philosophy. The BSQ stands for the biological symbiosis quotient. It is a formula which can take the space of an entire blackboard or several into which you can plug any and all facts at your disposal at that moment and come out with a vector between one and a hundred that gives you a sense of how the world is at that moment. It's like the Western equivalent of what the Bali Balinese do with the festival of 11 powers. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this thing every eleven years, and we're going to uh, discern what the universe is saying to us. How, how are we doing? What's our place? Uh, what should we be doing? What, you know, how do we feel? What, what's the universe doing with us in this in this huge context? And the BSQ just you know I created Riley's Brew. Oh. Which is a catalyst, and and that. and Riley's brew, which will be a secret recipe. But a uh, years later, I had a chemist, mm-hmm. a buddy of mine at college, named named Eddie, who was also a genius, but he was a nutcase. Uh, but but a wonderful guy. He used to run with the bulls in Pamplona, uh-huh. and he would wear a red flag on purpose. And he always had a red flag in his back pocket. And I said, Eddie, you've been running with the bulls, have you? And he said, Oh yeah. And so, can you tell me why Riley's Brew works? And he said, it's because of the three ingredients are all catalysts. Mm. And I just created it because I wanted to do my variation on a theme. And that's what I did. Created the logo, created the philosophy. And these guys just came along with me. And we were sort of infamous. I mean, our parties, I mean, when and when Eric and I got to North Beach, we'd create stuff in the kitchen. We had this little bay leaf growing out of a crag and a foundation. We'd just reach outside, grab a couple of bay leaves, and into the soup stock they'd go, and the magic would just happen. You know, you'd make five or six gallons of what we used to call team chowder, and it was gone. There'd mm. be like 40 or 50 people outside, like from around the neighborhood, just like, hey, what is that, man? It's like, <laughs> hello? Hey come on in you know we'd have we'd have parties and people would show up just like like from like from anywhere everywhere it's like they would drop in from the sky and we thought there's there's really something magical about this guys we have to keep this going somehow some way i don't know how we have to do that so now here we are 40 years later and i've got my off-grid facilities called airy ARI stands for Alternative Energy Research Institute, and and Eric likes to think of the I as integration, and I think that's right, that's correct, where I've been living off the grid for 22 years, both
0: out of necessity and because I like to do it. Let me interrupt you. Yes, please. I, I want to finish because I want to thank you. That was the whole point. Well, of, the, of that story, I appreciate that because you created a culture there. I, I know you know it was collaborative, but yes. I, I, you were. The it was collaborative. It was a team. It was a team. Yeah. team thing. And and when I moved to this little town, I I was immediately accepted. Absolutely into that group, and it was as if you but had it, sort of prepared space for It was because of your heart and me. because
3: of your intellect. Because we saw a kindred spirit in you. We said wow we just met this guy but it, it just fits it it works yeah
0: and it, it was fantastic because i was coming from and we're, such a and
3: i'm grateful place. i'm grateful because like we were saying at the at the inception 40 years has just vanished yeah it does not exist
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's great anyway i interrupted you but I, I just okay Chris. i've been trying to thank you for an hour here but that's all, um, That's it, all right. It was, uh, it, and you know, and you talked about your experience at the school and and how it was sort of pivotal for you. That few months in Casanova was pivotal for me because I was feeling like such a loser. And I got to Casanova, and I felt like I was on top of the world. That's that's the coolest, it's beautiful kids were like they. Hey, you're with us, buddy.
3: It's beautiful in the sense that it is not only paradoxical; it is also ironic because we were the losers, except every one of us was a straight A, honor roll kid. We partied our asses off. We were all scholar athletes. I was a tennis champion eric was a champion in football and basketball and sleeping
0: with everyone's mother cube
3: cube was (laughs) cube was the one of only two people in new york state history to score perfect on the chemistry and the math regents next to paul groff thank you paul wherever, wherever you are i believe he became an ethnobotanist from paul went to harvard cube went to mit cube was often so wasted that i'd go to Some of his classes for him, unbeknownst to him, and I'd get a I'd get a free education at MIT. And our good friend Chris DeBon, alias 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 Dubong, whose father was part of the admissions process at MIT. And I said, "Boy, we've got ins everywhere, guys. It's like, but you know, MIT is a really strange place because in the '80s, when Mark was there, you had the first ATM machines coming around, and In this enormous building Across University Avenue You would go through this Humongous hall I mean it made It would like dwarf Xanadu and Citizen Kane It was hilarious So You go down the hall And you see this huge glass Panel And you read The sign on the glass And you see the ATM machine On the other side Except the Glass door to get to the 24-hour ATM machine is only open from 9 to 5. And I said only at MIT. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they they can do the theoretical physics equations. They can send the probe around the moon, but they can't tie their own shoes. Yeah. And that's typical. Yeah. That really does happen. And I saw that And I confirmed it to myself. I said, my God, a 24-hour machine behind a nine-to-five door. (laughs) I said, this is perfect. You have so many rules that they ultimately work against themselves. And that's our society. Ultimately, if you have such an encumbered bureaucratic layering, it will become impossible to blow your nose without offending someone. And I said, well, that's that's when you have to just start doing things and disregard all the rules. And I've always said, and I don't mean to sound arrogant or egotistical, but I really believe rules are for people who need them. I believe that certain intelligences, and I believe we all have different intelligences, there's a great difference between stupidity and ignorance. Stupidity is deliberate disregard of knowledge. Ignorance is really admitting, honestly, well, I just don't know something. But we cannot feign ignorance in our society anymore because anybody can pick up one of these iPhones or a tablet or whatever it is. And if you don't know the Sanskrit or Urdu root word for house, in five minutes, you can look it up. You can see how it's spelled. You can see where it came from. Where's the history? You can even see how to pronounce it. And you could know what it is. In five minutes, you have a basic knowledge of something heretofore you didn't know so somebody says to me well i don't know what that is and i said well look it up don't remain in darkness there's no reason for that anymore you can learn anything you want and
0: i really believe in the pursuit of knowledge you know so do you think that's why i've been thinking about this recently in terms of politics I mean, there's always been an anti-intellectual bent to American society. Oh, yeah. But it seems to have just gone through the fucking roof recently. Oh, yeah. In the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. And I can remember when someone would say, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not educated. And there'd be a little shame with that, but it doesn't mean I'm stupid. But I'm right. not educated. Right. But my kids are going to be educated because I work hard and I want to send them right. to right. And, and
3: there's some kind of level of honesty there. They're yeah. admitting. They're 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 showing exactly. their cards. They're not pretending. No pretensions. But I, I saw the anti-intellectualism ushered in full tilt uh, when Reagan was elected. Oh, yeah. There's no question about it. In fact, and you can hear it in the voice of people like Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter and everybody on False News. I mean uh, Fox News. And and posh limbo, alias Rush Limbaugh, and they make all sorts of derisive and snide little digs at the college educated. Although you know, they all went to college, right, right? and and, and, and apparently are still successful at dealing many multicolored pills. But that uh, the the bottom line comes when you have. A greater majority of people who now see intellectualism as, oh, those are snobs because yeah. they're better educated than me. They're automatically putting, putting me down, which is them having been victimized by the anti-intellectuals into a somnambulistic state which allows them to even believe that in the first place.
0: But don't you think there there is legitimately a failure of the elites? The, you know, yeah. Camelot, right? Kennedy's right. administration was right. all these intellectuals, all these Harvard. The brain, the brain trust like the FDR. Brain trust, yeah. right. And what did they do? They, they let us into Vietnam, right? right? Bay of Pigs, like just disaster right. after disaster.
3: Right. right, the Gulf of Tonkin, which... Every veteran who was actually there knows didn't
0: occur. Never happened. Never. It was happened. all bullshit, right? right? So they're lying. They're right. they're fucking everything up. They're right. making mistakes. They're, I mean, every GI from every generation from
3: the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, has told me throughout their career, they've all told me one thing in common, which I found fascinating. Every single one of them, at some point, said. Wars are to make Rockefellers rich and GIs die. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, why do these people volunteer to serve? I know people in the Marines right now who question serving in Afghanistan because we're guarding opium poppies. Why? Because a warlord is providing us with some really, really cool intel. No, that doesn't wash anymore. We've been in Afghanistan and Iraq longer than we've been in Vietnam.
0: Yeah. But or the, World War II. Or, or World Korea. War II. Yeah.
3: Right. It's, yeah. it, it's untenable. We have the society built on, I think I was reading a statistic the other day, and Eric corroborated this, that 83 people, the richest 83 people that we know, have more wealth than three and a half billion human beings. Yeah, I said that is such a disparity, it's chasmic. It, 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 it It's difficult for me to describe yeah. how absolutely unacceptable that is.
0: So the anger of the average blue-collar truck-driving dude yeah. is, to my way of thinking, totally justified. Yes, it they is. They have been betrayed it economically, is. intellectually, yep. psychologically. And they've
3: been sold out, and yet oh. terrible is the irony that they vote for the people who then exercise the depredations.
0: Well, they don't have much choice, do they? No, the we don't have. fucked we, them, right. and the Bushes fucked them, yep. and you know. And I would say, fair, in all
3: fairness, the Democrats are equally susceptible to corruption as any Republican. And I say, let's throw out the labels; there are no such thing anymore. Mm. These are the to, yeah, to conservative, yeah, conservative libertarian. Anything. Well, most people don't know that Thomas Jefferson was a libertarian conservative. Mm. A to our way of thinking, that's a completely contradictory term, and hopefully Rush Limbaugh's head has just exploded. But the fact is, Thomas Jefferson was a liberal conservative. And you know, it's funny. Lloyd Benson, in 1988, said, I'm a fiscal conservative, but I'm a social liberal. So he was a moderate in that sense, a moderate Republican who was trying to balance Dukakis's ticket. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no balancing. There's no reaching across the aisle anymore. And, and quite frankly, politically speaking, many, many generations ago, a winner of an election would often reach across the aisle and offer uh, the Veep seat to mm. the opposing party. Mm. This was not uncommon 100 plus years ago. To balance the ticket, to right. to say to the American people, Cohesion. okay, I may be the winner, but I'm still willing to reach right. across the Cohesion. aisle. And now it's it's so deliberately polarized. I mean, you have Mitch McConnell, who's just like a mutant. I mean, that guy. I don't know where that guy's from. I yeah. mean, he's like he's yeah, like right, uh, you yeah. know some uh, you know some radioactive creature from a swamp from yeah. the Mesozoic. I don't know.
0: I, I don't and, want to get bogged down. No, in well, let's not get bogged but. down in the swamp. But, it's um, true.
3: Thank you for the pun. I appreciate that, Chris. There's nothing more I appreciate than horrifyingly atrocious puns. But God bless you. But you're so, right. It's time but, to get back on track. Let's
0: get back on track here. Yeah. I want to. I, I want people to get a sense of what I've seen here, which is extraordinary. And I've only really toured the one building. Yeah. We're on a compound in Montana. You designed all these buildings. Yes. Um, the the. The um, uh, laboratory you call it is essentially a, a pyramid sliced down the middle, the two halves pulled apart, and uh, a giant room added to the yeah center. an a-frame
3: yes exactly the pyramid an a-frame yeah. yeah the pyramid was built first to symbolically complete the Great Pyramid. If the pyramid house were this hoisted, is what we're in right now, what we're in right now, yeah, house. it it is. The dimension exactly of the missing capstone of the Great Pyramid, one of the great egyptological, archaeological mysteries. So and we,
0: we are essentially sitting on top of a Great Pyramid.
3: We're sitting in the eye on the back of the dollar bill.
0: Oh, boy. Oh, here <laughs> here yeah. Here go.
3: Yeah, but the good news is that according to mythology that I've read, that the completion of the Great Pyramid causes a cascade of enlightenment to tumble back into our dimension. Now, I haven't seen that happen. However, it must be said that this house would have to be hoisted off its foundation, go transatlantic, and be dropped on top of the Great Pyramid. I don't see that happening. However, all three of these buildings are part of my off-the-grid exploration, alternative energy architecture, earthquake-resistant architecture, sustainable architecture, really assembling a team of people who were able to build my ideas into physical 3D reality so that they could be tested in real time. Because the only way you're going to do it is to build it. You can draw, you can think of thousands of ideas, and hundreds and hundreds of drawings maybe a half a dozen models or so maybe it gets that far but then every once in a while it becomes a physical reality thereby it can be tested the thermal mass wall the walls that are 12 and a half inches thick which have an r value of near 60 all the windows which can be pivoted on an axis or hinged from the top you can have uh a laboratory where I experimented with radiant floor with uh, different orientation to have different fenestration it has different structural rebar in the concrete that's been re-engineered our third the office which more or less resembles a Quonset hut a half of a cylinder is another experiment can Our control which are SIPs panels, structurally insulated panel systems, can they be put into an ARC? Mm. Can we test the parameters at every step of the way? And now it's been 22 years since I built the pyramid and about 10 or 11 years since I built the other two buildings. And now we're uh, Eric uh, has taken it upon himself to look for crowdfunding, v- venture capitalism, because the systems need to be upgraded and brought into the modern day so that we can continue our mission statement of Airy, which is basically integrating all these different disciplines in the field of alternative energy to not only use them, but to test them to find out how they can benefit others maybe in a consulting capacity but to really be willing to take risks with certain technologies where other people are not we're in a position to do so because we're already off the grid Mm. legally speaking we're protected by being um a 501c3 and uh, being part of the homestead act 'Cause Montana and Alaska are still the only two places in the Union that can you can do that.
2: Mm.
3: So it allows us to have an autonomy that most other places could never achieve.
0: And you got tons of sun and tons of wind. Exactly. So are, did, when you came here, you told me the story about telling the real estate guy, <laughs> give me, <laughs> right. find me 20 acres of the windiest <laughs> land you can find or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> so were you, were you focused on wind at that point and then moved into solar later or?
3: Uh, focused on alternative energy and the pyramid shape, which became my focus, historically, architecturally, and Egyptologically, having gone to Egypt, having measured the summit platform, which was part of that journey, to find out that it's about 48 feet on a side and about 30 and one-third feet tall. Now, the walls of this pyramid are steeper. They've been adjusted for latitude. The pyramid in Egypt is much more gentler a slope, 51 degrees, 40 minutes. But this is more like 67 degrees because we're 45 degrees north latitude. So we're adjusted for that. So
0: why is that adjustment important?
3: The adjustment is important because when you're siting solar panels, you take your panel and you want to find out what true solar south is, hence solar north-south, by putting a stick in the ground uh, a straight rod, leveling it, making it plumb and true, then measuring a shadow out at nine o'clock, putting some kind of pin in the ground or a rock, doing the same thing at noon, and then doing the same thing at three o'clock. So the nine and three positions are equidistant and equitemporal. Then you take what would be very common in geometry, a compass. And you go from the nine and the three position until the two arcs overlap and see if they corroborate the the 12 o'clock, the solar noon position. If they do, that mark stays. That becomes your solar north-south. Then you have your east and west with a three, four, five triangle. Now, knowing that we're at 45 degrees north, it's a very convenient place That I picked. And as I was alluding to earlier, I always seem to be at the right place at the right time. This lot just happens to be almost exactly halfway between the North Pole and the equator and a mile above sea level. Mm. And I said, I'm tipping my hat to those ancient builders, whom I may never know, who are watching as I'm building this because I'm operating in the same frame of mind. I'm acknowledging their history. I'm acknowledging their legacy. And as Graham Hancock acknowledged in his books, this is a legacy. We've got to keep this knowledge going somehow. So in my small way, I'm doing my pyramid house as an acknowledgement of that. So 67 degrees being the slope here is a 24-12 pitch. However, When you sight solar panels after you've established the solar north-south, what's the best angle? Well, it is your latitude plus or minus the tilt of the Earth. So 45 plus the 22 or so, Mm -hmm. 67, 68 Mm -hmm. degrees, somewhere in there made perfect sense
0: mm, okay so that's the most efficient orientation of the panel toward the sun right. over a course of a year right
3: you could do it at 45 45 degrees north latitude or south latitude as in the case of new zealand uh that's a very convenient location to be on earth being halfway between a pole and an equator because even if the planet engages in some kind of total lithospheric shift uh Chances are, even if it shifts 10 degrees, you're still going to be in a relatively
0: safe zone. Yeah, the magnetic poles are shifting rapidly. They're, weak. they're, they're
3: certainly weakening, yeah. yeah. So it indicates there's something going on there that's a very large-scale planetary mechanism.
0: That's all you need,
3: huh? Oh, boy, I'll tell you what. That really that puts uh, that puts a little garlic in the sauce. <laughs> but then again, that's why I built a pyramid, because pyramids, if you think about it in a abstract sense think of it like a cube but all the sides have fallen in and they've Mm. all come to a point Mm. now all the sides are triangular every triangle reinforces itself and having four but people forget a pyramid always has a base that's the transition zone
0: and And is the base the same size as the as the sides no no not in this case no are there it, any pyramids where the base is this? You can. You could like turn it over. and You could have
3: like a, a four-sided die. Yeah. Could be four equal triangles. Right. Three faces and a base that's always on the downside. Right. But you could make those equal. Right. Equal faces. However, it was very interesting in the study of prisms that you can have a solid with three sides. If you imagine cutting out three ovals in paper and then joining all three sides Mm. that's the fewest sides a solid can have
0: Hmm. and it was always
3: considered people people just
0: and that would line up the 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 edges of the oval would would, they'd all be curved they'd all be like
3: little like an like a mouth shape yeah each side would be a mouth
0: shape a long very strange pointed oval you ever think about the fact that each, and, and this is getting really abstract and maybe I like abstract. May, maybe this is really stupid, although no, to, no. to me it's no, no, really no. interesting. I think I was really <laughs> No, this is on, the headquarters
3: was... <laughs> of questions. I welcome them all. All
0: right. So, so thinking in terms of dimension, right? The first dimension a dot, right? It's just a, a point. It's not even a, I don't know if that counts as dimensional. That's and right. then from that point, you go perpendicular, you have a line, right? right? And then from that line, you go perpendicular, now you have a plane. Yes. And from the plane, you go perpendicular, and now you have a cube or a sphere or whatever. You have three-dimensional space.
3: You remind me of the lesson that I gave my children when they were really little. When they were really little, I told them uh, the same thing. I talked Mark down when he had an OD, point, line, circle. I talked him into this simplified abstract geometry, and we called it point, line, circle. And what I then developed subsequent to that to teach my children was. Now, imagine you're looking at a point head on. Actually, you're not. It's a line. Now, imagine this flipping this way. No, it's actually a circle. Actually, it's not a circle. It's the perimeter of a sphere. That's one, two, three, four. Now, there was a great. what's five? Right. What, what is, is perpendicular five? Right. to a sphere? That's right. How can it be? There's, a, there's an indication. We could, there is something. We can simulate this with holography. Mm-hmm. The Smithsonian did this in the 1980s with laser, different colored lasers. Now, we can put a stick in the ground. Stick is thin, but it's still a three-dimensional object. But it casts a two-dimensional shadow. Mm. If we make a hologram, a holographic cube that casts a three-dimensional shadow, that's a fourth-dimensional object. We can find its location by the shadow's implication. Mm -hmm. A fifth-dimensional object has to be in a different kind of context because we can just step over that three-dimensional line into fourth dimensions with a stretch but getting into 5 is is going is really going where nobody's been it's really because okay. so because that's thought. that's wonderful because yeah. we have to acknowledge the possibility einstein i think acknowledged 11 oh, as know, as that. as conceptual at least as, as as strong likelihoods
0: all right let me just finish this my thought is that the only thing that's perpendicular to a sphere is the point at the center of the sphere It's perpendicular to every point on the inside of that sphere. Right. So it falls in on itself. It starts with a point and it ends with a point.
3: Right. Can a sphere somehow be an inside-out torus? What's a torus? A torus is a donut. It's a field. It's the magnetic field of the earth. Right. So in other words, it is the fifth dimension you're referring to where all the magnetic lines come down to that point somewhere in the center of the earth creates a field effect that if we had the you know all the iron filings in the universe we poured it all over the earth they would they'd show where that torus was hmm. like like the old grade school science experiment right. where's the where's the magnet right. let's pour the filings out that's how we discover you know, it's almost it reminds me of uh, the Invisible Man movie, the original with Claude Rains. The The police were closing in on him. And the way they were able to find out where he was was they followed his tracks in the snow. They couldn't see him, but they could follow where they where his tracks right. were. Yeah. So we have to figure out how to follow the tracks to find the implied location which, of course, is the actual location. The implied location will be the actual. And accepting something as real, which we can neither see nor measure nor feel nor smell, something that is absolutely extrasensory, will, I think, enable us to better detect them. Is acknowledging something which is absolutely preposterous and impossible is not only possible, but it is just as real as a fog bank, which isn't solid, but we can see it. We know that it hinders our vision if we drive through it, mm-hmm. and if we swipe through it, we can feel the moisture. Right. So we, but we know it's not solid, and 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 you know this is this is typical, you know, rhetoric. Um, where, well, you know, if you can't see it, it's not there, you know, stuff like that. That's classic rhetoric. Well,
0: you can't measure it. It doesn't exist. Right. And so, yeah. in other words, Try what the we... the placebo doctor.
3: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. what we need is the ability to incorporate better those leaps of faith, which allow us to come to a, what appear to be illogical conclusions, but in fact do ultimately prove out. At, because at first blush we say, oh, I don't think so. You know, it seems preposterous, far fetched. It's we can't prove it. You know, we can't take it into the laboratory. Is it repeatable? Is it measurable? No, no, no. But we know we know it's real. And you know, in some massive press conference that suddenly announces that, uh, uh, oh yeah, by the way, Area 51's been there for 50 years. Oh, 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 I get it. After all the years of all the photos, oh now it's all of a sudden it's a material reality. Mm. It's like, come on, that's nonsense you know press conferences do, do not validate it's like it's like the the united states also suffers from what i call george washington syndrome george washington syndrome is the story that we're all told as children um george did, did you chop down that cherry tree george i cannot tell a lie i did that's good george you told the truth you, you, you know, i didn't you know yeah, but that's where it ends. We don't yeah. we don't find out Still if down the dad that tree you little bastard. Right. Did he did he have to plant like six more trees in yeah. its place? We saw this with Oliver North and Brendan Sullivan. When he admits lying to Congress in front of Congress, which would have sent you and I to federal prison yeah. easily.
0: Yeah.
3: But there were no consequences for him admitting he lied. In other words, he tells the truth by admitting he lies. So somehow we we have that cancellation psychologically as a nation. It's like, oh well, it's okay. He admitted he lied. He told the truth. No, it negates the the first lie that he told, and all the compound lies on top of that, only to later be caught, indicted, and he's and he's getting grilled. But he admit and he's flagrant about it. He flouts this in front of Congress. You know, admitting you lie to Congress. I mean, that's borderline treason. Yeah. So that's George Washington syndrome. And we see this kind of cognitive dissonance in a lot of actions. People's behaviors are the tell. It's not what they say. People are so inarticulate and so poorly educated that I automatically discount most of what people say. It's almost like the medieval a uh, French phrase that translates to, you know, unintelligent people should remain silent lest they open their mouths and remove all doubt. It, it, that's really preponderant today. Yeah. And it's shameful because education should be one of the pillars of our society.
0: Yeah, but we have education, you know, abstinence-only sexual education. Right. It's that's, abysmal. It's it's, it, it's far-fetched. only education. Right.
3: And your your book takes, I think— appropriate action in the education department by stating the anthropology of it, stating the good science. You know, I was thinking of like, well, maybe we could have a, a simian based law firm called Pro Bonobo. <laughs> i'm sorry I, I i you'll have to excuse my atrocious my you atrocious puns blow job. that's right you can that's right. <laughs> that's right how long can he keep it up <laughs> your honor there's a cum stain on the affidavit well that's see that's but but i like i like I, I like what you are about you know, and I, and I confess that's the only book of yours I've read so far. Which I'm ready to read Sex at sex Dawn. Dawn. Yeah. Absolutely, and I, I I say that freely. <laughs> that is an unqualified, ringing endorsement, and I, I do that deliberately. <laughs> but it's also because it educated me, and I like knowledge. I like facts. I like studies which show that X and Y and Z. And we go back in time, what made us who we are? What are the habits? What do, Why do we still have them? You know, why do we have them originally? And all of that stuff is a window into who we are. And that allows me to segue into what they are studying about megaliths right now. And this really, really dovetails with... You know, sex at dawn, and there could be part two, part three, part four, because there's so much more to say on that subject and so, subjects. So
0: megalith You're about, talking about Göbekli Tepe, or? I'm
3: talking about Göbekli Tepe. I'm talking about Stonehenge and any one of a number of thousands of them across Europe. It's not only that moving enormous stones must have been quite easy
0: because they're doing because they're over the place. they're
3: all over the place yeah. and. We are now seeing good evidence from archaeoastronomical surveys, good archaeological evidence. For example, in Stonehenge, there's a recumbent stone with two shorter stones. And we're always thinking of uh, some druid, you know, standing in the middle, and he's looking through the columns and the... uh, post and lentils and he's looking and it's like oh yes it's such and such a date uh yeah you know it's a good time for a hunt or something like that he's blessing the hunt it's like no 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 this is a window into the past it stonehenge for a large part is designed to be seen from the outside in not the inside out and this is only recently come to our understanding based on a husband and wife studying the monument with new eyes they were fascinated by the fact that the heel stone, which is quite far away, casts a very obviously phallic-shaped shadow right into the cleft of the recumbent stone, the vulva. Immediately, the husband and wife are thinking, they're putting their minds back 5, 6, 10, 15,000 years. That could be a symbolic marriage of Father Sky and Mother Earth, Hmm. there could have been a high priestess sitting on that stone like this during her menses. There's evidence of this now. Biologically, there's a weird fungus which grows right on that stone. And you want to know something? It's red in the cleft of the recumbent stone. It's all fertility ritual? Yeah. Imagine this. The high priestess, she's menstruating. The hunters are coming in, and she's swabbing their foreheads with her blood. She's blessing their hunt. And all of a sudden, we're back 15,000 years. All of a sudden, this scientific team, husband and wife, were seeing the monument from a new way. And I'm saying, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to come with a fresh perspective. We need to see this with... With ancient eyes, even if it's only a little window, a little peek into the past, what does that say about those people? I think it's incredible. It says that we saw the period is very natural and very necessary to a good hunt, and that the priestess had a lot of natural power, which she is anointing the hunters with, because she wants them to have a successful hunt, too, because it's feeding everybody.
0: What Do you know what time of year that shadow? Solstice. Summer solstice Summer because it solstice. cast
3: the longest ah. shadow ah, okay. right and right. from the Heelstone yeah. to there. yeah. And it also happens, I believe, at the, yeah, the winter margina- solstice.
0: The marginalization of sexuality right. and, and women yeah. in general yeah. is, is such it's a, a tragedy. It's
3: abominable. It's abominable. It's ridiculous. And it, it's, it
0: makes it impossible for us to really understand anything because right. it's, it's like the the Library of Alexandria. It's like half of human experience has been erased from the historical right. record.
3: Deliberately so. Yeah. That's that's what really is sinister about it, is the knowledge is intentionally withheld instead of shared freely. And this is why I had a great experience, and I think every father should have a shopping experience with his daughters, because I'm not like the typical males, like, oh, fuck, you know, going shopping. It's like, no, 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 it isn't. It's a treasure hunt. It's a treasure hunt with another person's perspective, and so I'm in the women's clothing section. my daughter's about fifty feet away. we're in Macy's, and I'm surrounded by these mothers and daughters who are shopping and I can and this is one of those occasions when I could hear their thoughts <laughs> and it's beautiful because and you can see it you can see Look it on the their fucking f-
0: guy
3: the right and that's and that's what they're thinking it's, Again, like, it's like what the is it's like. It's like it's like, what the fuck's he doing here? You know, hole, you can hear. It. Up little girl's and, and, clothing. and you know, it's really even. And this, and this is what. And I, since I could hear them, I'd sort of glare at them from time to time, <laughs> you know, and, and like dare them to make some inappropriate comment. And then I'd look over to my daughter and I'd give her the nod. And this other woman was noticing that there was this unspoken communication. And so I hold up the yellow camisole and Ari was looking at it. And this woman looks over at me. It's like, how did you do that? And I said, because my daughter and I are telepathic. That's why I'm here. Oh, and oh, by the way, it's 70% off. (laughs) And she was fuming. She was like, she was fuming because she was thinking like, you're a male. You're not supposed to be able to do that. You're not supposed to be having this experience with your daughter. You know, it was really vicious. It was, it was an attack. It was a psychic and emotional attack. She was very defensive of her, the female territory. And I said, this isn't territory. This is a father and daughter having a shopping experience because I see it as kind of like a little treasure hunt. And I, and then I look over to Ariana and I said, shoe department next, right? Ari? And we just disappeared out of her vicious radius. And it was hilarious because she was just sitting there fuming. She couldn't get any satisfaction because what she was really saying was she wasn't having that good experience with her daughter shopping.
0: Or maybe that her husband would never would never something would, like that. That's
3: right. She's she's yeah. exposing her insecurities. And, People uh, suffer
0: so much. They man. do.
3: They do. And, you know, they do so and they try and contain it. And... It's not something which they can contain in a healthy way. It has to be, there has to be an expiation. Mm. There has to be an exorcism, which is not a confessional booth, which is a legitimate giving off. Yeah. The steam has to be yeah. let off. That, you got to find that valve. You got to open wide up, stand in the field naked, shout, spin around, throw rocks. Yeah. Don't hurt anybody else, but flow. just let it go. Yeah. let it go and just tell yourself you're letting it go and then you are unburdened at least temporarily and i really where, believe that
0: where in your life what has caused you the most pain
3: uh bullies and i'll tell you um i had an experience in 4th grade i was good friends with a guy named jeff ludicky jeff uh Coke bottle glasses, he had some physical impairments, but the kid loved to shoot hoops. This kid was a fan of basketball. I would often find him alone on the playground. He was shooting free throws like for hours at his home. Had a basketball hoop, and I remember in fourth grade, Steve Nurse, who was the bully, he pushed him down, and something inside me snapped I ran the entire length of that hall and I rammed Steve and down he went on two flights of steel and concrete stairs and I followed him all the way down. And Mr. Rydell and Mr. Glenn and Mr. Schumard, who was the principal, pulled me off him because I was trying to find his hyoid bone and snap it. I was going to kill him absolutely with my bare hands because he picked on somebody
0: I think of that all day. It's mm-hmm.
3: weird. It's weird, Chris. I think of that. And, and you know, when I went back to a high school reunion, Steve Nurse crossed the street to avoid me because, because I tell people, yeah, I tell good. people, I said, you know, I don't drink and I don't get high anymore because, uh, it's like Bill Bixby used to say in the incredible Hulk. It's like, you won't like me when I'm angry mm. because I turn big and green and I knock myself through walls and I turn cars over. And I have had a couple of adrenaline episodes like that where I've been standing in front of a steel fire door, and the next thing you know, it's on the floor, and it's bent.
0: You're a big dude. Well, it's leverage. It's, there's
3: something going on there, that, uh, and I don't do that. I don't, I'm not around things that can trigger my adrenaline like that. I don't want to
0: be. Do you know what your IQ is?
3: My sister measured her IQ and she always said i was smarter than she was and she was 158 i've never measured it yeah. i i don't know what to think i i just think a
0: lot I, you know someone i remember reading uh a different a smart person controls their mind a genius is controlled by it wow
3: well and i don't i don't i'm both a night owl and an early riser yeah <laughs> so when i get 3 hours of sleep it seems like a blessing
0: yeah yeah, it's, But it's
3: a sense of time. It's a cosmic sense of timing, Chris. I can't explain.
0: But that, what I wanted to say is that you're not, I, I, you're one of the smartest people I've ever met, for sure. But you are not um, egotistical. No. And you, you, you're talking about flowing just now and how people yeah. need to go on a field right. and let emotions and, flow. And that
3: intellect should not ever be used to, to put people down or to cudgel them. Or to bludgeon them with it, or to somehow aggrandize right. myself because that's wrong.
0: It's wrong. It's, and, it's, and it's ethically,
3: morally, yes, and it's just and it's phony. In the 17th century, that would have been called puffery. Mm-hmm. It's 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 very ill-advised and very poor and uh, immoral deportment. Yeah. It's like deliberately trying to make yourself look or appear better than you are. And a lot of it was posture. And it's all ego. But my ego needs to take a little vacation because what I'm about right now, I'm so focused on my daughter's imminent wedding, on the airy projects, on the BSQ, on my barbecue sauce recipes, on so many (laughs) things, which now have been waiting in the wings, for four decades, some, and now it's their time. It's going to be their time to have the spotlight. Yeah. And I want it to be a team effort because nobody, I mean, even in a science fiction sense, Kirk and Spock don't pilot the Enterprise by themselves. Sure. Even if they had the knowledge to do so, you have to have the right team. That's what the B Squad and it's was. No fun. Right. The it's team. No fun being alone. The team. You yeah. have the the ship with yeah. your with the best people on it, and that enhances the journey. And we're all on some fantastic journey. Yeah. So,
0: so. What's, what's your, do you feel that you have a, um, you know, we were talking earlier how, how you feel uh, a sense of uh, what's the word like, like you're not encumbered by being in a hurry because there's this sense that of lives mm-hmm. after lives yeah. after lives. Do you feel that there's something particular that you need to get done in this life?
3: Um this time around I got to have children mm. that much I know I'm absolutely That's a certain huge of that
0: accomplishment that in
3: itself and Eric was on the sa- is is he and I are on the same journey in that sense and I really believe that was the challenge and I often have said to people I hope I learn something new every day usually from my children I go for a walk every day and I go with my son Nicholas and if Samantha's not working sometimes she'll come but we go for a walk and walking is really good for the soul and you get to unload and you get to have some exercise and you get time spent that quality time is un- unbelievable you just don't get those opportunities and well, when you when you know yeah that they're there yeah. okay now we must take advantage of this this is very valuable this is time well spent in the classic sense
0: there's a book called my secret history by paul Theroux. who is a travel writer Uh, It's an autobiographical uh, memoir, kind of fictionalized memoir. Anyway, there's a line in it. I I gave the book to my father. It's a really good book. And and my dad underlined this one thing, and he showed it to me. He said, because the passage is underlined, as Paul Theroux said, "Um, I have one great talent that I see in very few people, which is that I know when I'm happy in the moment that I'm happy. It's not retrospective. I don't look back and say, oh, I was happy when I was 25. Hmm. I knew I was happy when I was 25. I know when I'm enjoying it. And that's such a beautiful capacity because so many people are living their lives retrospectively. Right. You know, and, and so when you talked about taking a walk with your children or, you know, yeah. just noticing the world around you, that's that's all I want to do. That's yeah. my only... The time well
3: spent. Yeah, I mean, if we have approximately a 100-year ride in
0: a body—that's optimistic, a little, brother. <laughs>
3: little soul, little soul car. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. I told I told people that my my late grandmother was going to outlive us all, and when my sister and my mom passed away, I was basically the last man standing, except for Grand-Didi, who at that time was 104.
0: Mm.
3: And yeah. I remember her describing what it was like when she was little and her father would sit her on his lap and he'd hold the new york times in front of her and he'd read and she said she remembered december 31st 1903 so i asked my children what what's what's important about that date and they said they didn't know and i said that's um when the wright brothers flight was successful Uh and the the front page, I mean, it's just, it's so eerie how you see this huge, rectangular, grainy photograph. And there's this guy who's taking his cap off and he's going like this. And you see another man way down and you see the craft that's just a few yards off the ground. And it's just going down. It's like, oh my God, that's just, wow. When she, when she described that, it just made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I said, Didi, You've seen that, and 66 years later, there's Neil Armstrong coming out on the moon. I said, it's only 66 years apart. I said, we should have already been to Mars. It's my contention that we already have been. We already are because of logistics. Our technology in 2005, 2006 was pretty decent computer-wise. Mars was at its closest point to Earth in 60,000 years. You don't miss an opportunity like that.
0: You think they sent a man I, think, I, sure? think,
3: I think there's a base on Mars because of that proximity. So instead of taking six months to go one way, it would have only taken six weeks. Mm. You could have gone in six weeks, stayed there for six weeks, and come back in six weeks. That was perfectly within the technology of the time, absolutely. Absolutely, And there's so many unusual things that are on Mars, not just geologic. You know, the fact that Mars has weather, the fact that the atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, perfect opportunity to plant some plants and see what happens to them. Come back in 20 years, see what's happened to them.
0: How thick is the atmosphere? It's very thin. Yeah. It's
3: very thin. It's mostly carbon dioxide. So it's not breathable. But if you, had, if you and I were the only two astronauts on Mars, and we had a stadium-sized greenhouse, we could breathe that atmosphere. Because the plants would be turning so much CO2 into so much usable O2 for us that the only thing we have to worry about is introducing the 78% nitrogen to the situation. Which I would wager there's a source of on Mars that can be molecularly altered mm. or harvested in a way so that it could be reasonably Earth like. It would probably smell and taste awful to us because we're used to this. But with one third of Earth's gravity, a thin atmosphere, lots of radiation, I mean, Mars is red for a good reason. It's not just a lot of iron in the soil. It's because of the soil has been completely sterilized from, you know, the top few inches by radiation because mm. the atmos- there's not much atmosphere to protect it. Yeah. So what kind of plants do you have in your greenhouse that can be put in a greenhouse that's more radiation resistant? Plants that can then use the virtually sterile soil. I think it's completely feasible. I think you would have had sufficient
0: ice, which you could melt. Right. Right. And
3: you have dry ice. You could drag a chunk of dry ice into a greenhouse and have it evaporate. And there's the CO2 for the plants right there. And dry ice can be processed, some of it into drinkable water. Mm -hmm. Not much, but enough to make sure you're alive. Mm -hmm. So why miss an opportunity like that? I've got to believe that they would have overshot the moon on purpose. There's no reason to go back to the moon. But it
0: wouldn't, I mean, any kind of a a mission like that, wouldn't that have been visible from the surface of the Earth with various telescopes? I think you
3: could launch, I I think, as Elon Musk has, has shown, you can do some pretty inexpensive launching.
0: Yeah, but it's all visible.
3: Right, but if nobody is told about it, if it's launched from a base whose location is not disclosed, It would have launched, and it might not have been noticed. There's a chance that it wouldn't have been noticed. Who would have been filming it except the people interested in the mission?
0: I wonder if there's stealth technology that you could apply to rocketry.
3: Well, I would have to believe there is. The theory of invisibility is, can you bend light enough such that it's invisible? Well, I've seen chameleons up close, and if I didn't know... I was looking at a chameleon, I'd say, that's pretty damn near invisible. But it's, it's in other words, it's visible in a different way. Mm. It's almost like the anonymous ancient mariners proverb of saying, we cannot control the wind, but we can adjust our sails. Mm. So what we're thinking would be, well, what if the craft were highly polished? It would reflect all the colors of the sky it was around it would be 90% less visible not invisible but certainly a lot less visible now if you could maybe there's a house
0: like that in Joshua Tree it's all <sighs> mirrors and you can't see it it's it's amazing i've been there i've it's, seen a
3: picture of it i haven't been there it's myself the but invisible house yeah
0: <laughs> but apparently they're going to make him take it down this is like a 5 million dollar house didn't have the right permits
3: see that that's that's just it you know that sounds like a zoning commission that's uh, got no 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 heart yeah, no creativity you know, not willing no to have oh gosh we can't have free thinkers you know oh, we can't have artists living here they're probably uh, communists or something and you know some other they've they've justified their
0: Hollywood. rule yeah. it's a hollywood guy you yeah, know I, I, I knew this guy <laughs> who, who spent some time with the mansons oh god and he told me that they had a a camp out around joshua tree somewhere or the mojave desert maybe and he, where they stored a lot of their weaponry like they were accumulating mm. weapons because they thought this revolution was about to break out and all. Mm. um and you know what they did it's really clever they had tents and they coated the tents they'd like um uh, with glue they painted just glue on the tents and then they threw sand at them and they disappeared <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh my god yeah that's amazing I mean, you could
0: walk right into it you wouldn't see it that's remarkable
3: well when i see a rattlesnake outside um they're always good to rattle at me and then that that's when i see them it's funny i hear them first of course and then i see them occasionally i see them first but they're camouflaged naturally it's it's remarkable i remember walking near carpenter's pond that you know from Casanova, and i was walking down near the edge and i saw a heron fishing from the other side and it must have noticed me i did something which startled it or And it turns, pivots 270 degrees in the air and goes right down to the end of the pond and lands on a half-submerged log and freezes and becomes another branch Mm -hmm. because the direction and grain of its slaty feathers match the dead wood perfectly. If I hadn't seen that, I wouldn't have believed it. That is it's not only natural, it was magical mm. to have witnessed that. Yeah. I thought that's incredible stuff. I would have to believe that's possible. I mean, you look at snipers in ghillie suits, they could sneak right up on you. You wouldn't know it. Yeah, That, takes, that doesn't take just practice. That takes some extra ability. Yeah. It's almost shamanic yeah. in that kind of sense. How spooky.
0: Listen, brother, we've been going almost two hours.
3: It's easy for what? time to disappear at a pyramid, Chris. <laughs> You're in the
0: heart of the pyramid. You
3: really are. Uh,
0: it's beautiful. Thank you for doing this. Is, is there a website? Thank you for or- the
3: opportunity. No, it, we are going to have a website up soon. Uh, Eric's uh, older son, Val, and he are going to be working on it. It will be aerie.net, dot net And we are a legitimate 501c3. You will eventually, uh, probably by next spring, I would imagine, have it fully functional. So we'll have emails. We'll have uh, a contact. You'll be able to get the barbecue sauce. Eric's going to make a really delicious pesto. We're in the process (laughs) right now of having the sanitarian and the laboratories test the kitchen for cleanliness so, so hot
0: sauce is part of energy generation it, alternative it, energy It is generation. because
3: we can claim that we've made this hot sauce in a laboratory completely off the grid right. which will be a marketing right. uh, a, built, and, a marketing and the, thing The
0: fiery sensation you have coming out of your ass after you've eaten this hot sauce it's is True uh,
3: it's not only Is it Thai chili pepper. Or
0: fusion? Are you using Thai? Are you using those little... Uh, it's more
3: like fibulation.
0: The mouse, mouse, mouse droppings, the mouse turds.
3: Uh, no, we don't. The we don't. We don't use hantavirus. Thai. We don't distill no, that no. down. Not yet, anyway.
0: No, the Thai chilies—they oh, the they call Chilis. them mouse turds. Oh
3: man, the Thai chilies are great. Well, I love them. when they're fully desiccated, they really look like little pinky fingers, and they are like firecrackers, and that's what I call them. I call them firecrackers. Yeah, they're—I mean—all the water's driven off in the solar dehydrator, which you're sitting next to, because right on the other side of that's the thermal mass wall and the window, in a, in a day like today, would have perfectly dried everything. I dry mushrooms, herbs, peppers mm. like that. If I think they're going to go bad, I'll desiccate them. Naturally, solar dry, they store for years. But the website will be up and running within six months, certainly. And right. it's, it's in the planning stages. Well, but I thank you for asking because yeah. we're going to put your contact on there. We'll have contact links for our, our team, so to speak, uh, the people yeah. who are in our
0: immediate sphere. And this will be in the archives, and hopefully we'll do another one when yeah. you're up and running. Exactly, and
3: a up. follow-up. Yeah, yeah I look forward to that. And thank you also for the opportunity, because I love sharing ideas and discussing philosophy and your books and my well, yeah, wild man. ideas. And you never know where these things go, and, and tangentially speaking is absolutely appropriate, because I'm often accused of going off <laughs> on know. wild tangents, and who, who better should I be speaking Come to? On, but, man.
0: That's life, right? That's, that's perfect. That's all there is. <laughs> Thank you, brother. You're welcome. Hey, kids. It's me again. Just wanted to drop in and let you know that Whitney's site is, in fact, up. Uh, So if you want to know more about what they're doing, go to aeri.net. That's A-E-R-I dot net. And uh, you can see some photos of the various buildings that uh, we were talking about and uh, a lot of information about the um, alternative energy technologies that they're working on there. So check that out, net. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate your your support of the podcast in whatever way that manifests. Here's Mom, as always, trying to move some of that merch from the garage. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of (laughs) t-shirts, Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo-Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then, we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death. Design. They're all Civilized That's right. to Death. right. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom.
4: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to. And what's the difference if you turn away? about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone